Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he was born He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, and when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressor. The song we just sang, the son of suffering, mentions the man of sorrows, the one who is acquainted with grief, the Jesus who came and lived and died on the cross, bore our sin, bore our shame, crushed for our iniquities like a sheep led to the slaughter, being the sacrifice for us. This is the Jesus that we get to sing all glory to God forever, that we could cry to him as Isaiah chapter six early on would say, holy, 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 as Revelation chapter five would say, the one who is worthy to open the scroll, we can praise King Jesus and we can sing all for you, Jesus. Good morning. Thank you. Praise God. Thank you this morning for being here. My name is Braden Rodriguez. I'm the student 1825 pastor here at our LifePoint Delaware campus. And we're so glad that you're here. Welcome guests, welcome members, regular attenders. Uh, A couple of things this morning before we get started. Uh, We are coming into the fall. And so what does that mean? OWU students are coming back. And so this section at 930 will be filled up uh, like it was. And uh, students are starting school, elementary, middle school, high school, public, private, homeschool. Uh, It is a new season. Uh, And so often people kind of make resolutions at the beginning of the year and August, right? Because that's when the routine gets regular again. And so what we want to do in this season is pray for, uh, one, our students returning, our students going back to school, for our our leaders and our uh, county and our school board. We want to pray for our administrators, for our teachers, uh, that one, God would move in them, God would move through them, uh, and then that they would just uh, feel compelled to come to him that they would be compelled to come to Jesus. And so we want to begin to pray for those things. School just uh, is right around the corner. So let's make sure we're, we're praying for those things. And then next week is all in Sunday, which means our elementary schoolers will be in here with us. And we are doing communion, which was, I know what you're thinking, like that must be an oversight. 
It is not. We planned it on purpose. We want your kids to be in here while we take communion. Why? Because if they are believers in Jesus Christ, it is their right and privilege to take the Lord's Supper with us. And you're like, well, we've never talked to our kids about the Lord's Supper. We've never talked to them about taking the communion, right? That's great because we have some things uh, for you to talk to your students. You can go back to LPK or Guest Central today and you can grab some things to talk to your student, your elementary schooler about what it means to take communion and honestly start that conversation and say, hey, like, where do you feel like you stand with Jesus? Do you feel like he is the one who bore your sin and that you follow him with your life? And if so, that's an amazing way to start a conversation with your student. And if they were to be like, I don't even know what you're talking about. What an even better way to, to tell your student and your child about the gospel and about Jesus and what we're about to do next week on Sunday, celebrating that he died in our place, that he would bear our sin and shame the man of sorrows for us, taking our stripes so that we might be healed. So we couldn't think of a better way for your kids to see you take that and them to be a part of that as well if they are believers. And so we would love for them to be a part of that next week. So grab that uh, on your way out today. Uh, to catch you up, if you've not been here over the last few months, we have been in this series called Labels. And we've been walking through the book of Luke. And I know what you're thinking if you're looking at the sign. Wasn't it blue last week? It was. I thought I was going crazy this morning. I was like, man, I need new glasses because it's purple now. And I had to, I literally asked, I said, guys, does that look purple to you? And they're like, yes, we changed it. I was like, oh, thank you, God. Uh, I had like literally just went to the optometrist this week. They said nothing about me being colorblind. So um, yes, we've been walking through this series in the gospel of Luke. And this main idea that we've had is this, is that the gospel calls us to a life above labels. And we, you've heard us say that week in and week out now. Uh, and as we've seen through the book of Luke, Jesus has this reputation of taking marginalized people and making them unmarginalized. What do I mean by that? These disreputable sinners, the woman of disrepute, the, the, the tax collectors, and all of these people come to Jesus. And what happens is, is they come labeled by their culture, and then Jesus removes it, and now they are sons and daughters of the Most High God. Usually the passages end with them giving God glory. Because Jesus has stripped the label away. Now the only label we carry is that of Christ's follower. That we just follow Jesus. That we're just with him. This morning, we're actually going to kind of flip the script just a little bit. We're going to talk about the labeling of Jesus wrongly and rightly. That it's not somebody being labeled in this passage like us. It is the very son of God who's being labeled by the religious elite and the Pharisees. And to give you just a forewarning, this text is really heavy. It's a really hard passage to handle. Even in study, I was like, whoo, this is going to be, this is going to be fun. Thanks, Kale. Right? Uh, if you would open your Bibles to Luke chapter 20, I would love to hear the holy ruffle of your pages or maybe see the holy glow of your iPhone on your face with the version app. I would love it. Light humor before we get deep, right? Break, break the awkwardness. No, but seriously, this morning, we're going to talk about this idea that Jesus is the cornerstone that we can build our lives upon. We can either build our lives upon the cornerstone, the rock of Jesus, or as the text would say at the end of Luke chapter 20, we can be crushed underneath that same rock. What do we mean by that? That we can build our lives upon the rock of Jesus, that he can be our foundation. There's a passage that talks about how if we build our house upon the rock, being Jesus, the winds will come, they will, and the waters will rise. And yet when they hit against the house, it's built firm and it will not fall that we can build our everything upon Jesus or 
the flip side, if we choose to reject Jesus, if we re choosing to reject the cornerstone, as many of the religious elite do here in this passage, that they begin to be crushed by it. That under the weight of their own self-demise, their own sin, they begin to be crushed by this very cornerstone that could have been the thing they built upon. And we go back to that same passage. If, if we do that, if we choose to reject Jesus, it is like building our house upon sand. And when the winds come, which they will, and the waters rise, which they will, what happens to that house? It says it falls. The sands begin to shift and everything falls down. I think a good example for us this morning could be, uh, I've heard it called this way, is um, they begin to label Jesus and they begin to have these ideas about what Messiah would look like and they begin to fabricate in their mind this fake Messiah, the things that they think Messiah should be. And uh, I've heard it called this way, they make a Plato Jesus. They build this Jesus up to who they think he should be and when he doesn't fit the box, they reject the true Jesus. They've labeled Jesus wrongly. We do the same thing, actually. We, we take the Play-Doh out of the can and we begin to build who we think Jesus should be through our conservative Republican views. We make little Republican Jesus and we build him up and he looks like this and he's, he's got to follow into these politics. We let that inform what we see Jesus as, so we label Jesus before we ever come to the God of the Bible. Or maybe it's on the opposite, opposite side. This is liberal democratic Jesus. Or maybe this is libertarian Jesus, right? We build him up to look this certain way. Oh, maybe this is the Jesus that are, that's okay with me watching pornography because it's not actually cheating on my wife, right? Maybe this is the Jesus that we've built in our minds that we can go drink Saturday and Friday night and then come to church on Sunday. And as Rick said last week, it'll balance the cosmic scales, right? If I go to church, I'm washed clean. That's the Jesus I serve. He's okay. And reality is, is then we get to the, the God of the Bible, the Jesus of the Bible, and we read about him and we don't like it. So what do we do? We just begin to pluck little pieces off Jesus as we don't like it anymore. Or better yet, what's good about Plato? Kids, you can tell me. You can make anything. You crush it and start over if you don't like it. If it doesn't look like a house at all, we'll just, we'll just start over. You don't like it? We'll mix the colors of the Plato, right? It's no true Jesus at all. Any Plato Jesus that we make, any fake Jesus that we make is an idol is a fabrication in our own minds. It is not the true Jesus. Unless we come to the Bible and see who Jesus says who he is in here, and we take that, and that's what we begin to build our lives upon, we've worshiped an idol, a fake Jesus. For a very long time, these religious elite worshiped the idea of a different Messiah that they thought would come. They labeled Jesus wrongly. We start in the text, Luke chapter 20, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe? But if we say it's for man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John the Baptist was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. It's, it's an interesting way to start the passage, right? We're supposed to be talking about Jesus being this cornerstone. That's all like we're talking about Jesus' authority. By what authority does Jesus do these things? Let's give us some context. We back up to Luke chapter 19 
We saw that Rick talked about Jesus and Zacchaeus, this wee little man, right? Rick did an amazing job. And then right after that, we see Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which marks the Sunday before his resurrection. So Jesus is now just days away from being brutalized and murdered on a cross. So now Jesus is heading towards the cross. He's only a few days away. And right at the end of Luke chapter 19, right before Luke chapter 20, there's these like weird three obscure verses that we see about Jesus going into the temple and flipping tables and driving out money changers and these people who are selling sacrifices. And I know what you're thinking. This is like property damage at best. Jesus is not a good look, right? Like Jesus, you do know you're not supposed to do that, right? Here's the reality. Why does Jesus go and do it? Because this is a righteous act. Why is it okay that Jesus goes in and flips these tables? Right? For us, we'd be going to jail, right? For him, it seems like nothing happens. What's happening is, is there's these money changers in the, chim- in the temple. People would come with their Roman money, exchange it for Hebrew money, and give their temple offering. Normal stuff right here. And then there's people selling sacrifices, right? For this long Passover journey for people who are coming to Jerusalem. They would, instead of bringing all of their livestock, just buy it when they get there and then just give it as the sacrifice. Normal. It's not a bad, not a bad deal, right? You don't have to take everything with you. But the problem with it here is, is where they're set up. They're set up in the court of the Gentiles. That they would walk in, Jesus, see it, And now they're set up here where people are supposed to be worshiping. In fact, the people that the Jews hated, Gentiles, everyone who was not a Jew. I'd be like, if this morning I set up H&R Blocks, Jackson Hewitts, and all of the like, and then put some smelly livestock in here and said, worship, that's going to be great. You would never come back to this church. Well, for the Jew, that'd be great. Gentiles won't come back, right? Let's push them out. They didn't like them anyway. There were already places in the city to exchange money and to sell sacrifices. They chose to put it here, to hinder the worship of the Gentiles. This is why Jesus comes in, sees it, and is righteously angry and flips the tables. Why it's not a problem. Why he would then look at them in an act of a prophet, flipping these tables over, would say, you've turned my house, which was a house of prayer, quoting Isaiah, and turned it into a den of robbers, quoting Jeremiah. Not two small prophets, by the way. Two of the longest prophets in the Old Testament. They're called major prophets because of how long their books are. So here Jesus comes in. He's quoting prophets, does the act of a prophet. And he says, hey, what are you doing? Jesus here is on display as the prophet, the priest, and the king. He is on display for who he truly is. What do I mean when I say Jesus is on display as the prophet? All of the scriptures have culminated to this point. It is all pointed to him. It is all pointed to these moments in his last days. And he is the fulfillment. He is the one who was and is and will come back for his people one day. He is on display as prophet. He's on display as priest as he drives out money changers and sacrifices. He, in just a few days, will be the sacrifice for us. He is king, that he would come in and say, hey, look, you can worship anywhere. You can serve anywhere now. I'm starting a global kingdom, Gentile, Jew, Samaritan, anyone. And there's a warning for us here as we start today. Do not hinder the worship of someone who is worshiping the right God. That we would not put any label on Jesus that is not from the Bible and that we wouldn't hinder any person from coming. 
hey, I know, you, uh, I know you got all those tattoos. You should probably wear long sleeves. You definitely got to wear pants to church. Come on. Before you come with me to church, you have to do this. Hey, man, if you act, I actually, you can't go out drinking the night before. Just, you can't come on Sunday. Sorry. And maybe we don't say things like that, but we, in our actions, do things like that, or we act certain ways towards people, and they feel unwelcomed to come to a God who truly cares about them. Because what the Bible says is where sin abounds, grace abounds the more. Let them come in. Wherever they are, whoever they are, let them come. Jesus says, I will give you rest. We dare not stop someone coming and worshiping the true God, the one who is prophet, who is priest, and who is king. And so this is where we get the start of this passage. Jesus, what authority do you do the flipping of tables and quoting our heavy hitter prophets? Why are you doing these things? By what authority are you doing these things, Jesus? Jesus responds back with an amazing question. By what authority did John the Baptist baptize people, right? Everybody in the city loved John the Baptist. He was a prophet. God was silent for 400 years. Here's John the Baptist on display, declaring to make straight the way before Jesus coming. He's like, this is the one who I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. They recognize John the Baptist as a prophet, but here the Pharisees, the religious elite, the scribes, the elders can't reconcile it. That dude's weird. That's, that's weird John hanging out outside of the city, baptizing those people, eating locusts, eating honey, wearing weird scratchy clothes. How could he be a priest? How could he be a prophet? How could he be somebody who declares repentance before people? They don't like the way he looks. So they reject him. They give him up over to the Roman authorities and eventually Rome would behead John. Same with Jesus. Jesus doesn't have the priestly lines and all the fancy clothes like they do. They've already decided Messiah needs to ride in on a white horse. Save us from Rome. Jesus, what authority do you have? You don't look like what we want you to. John doesn't look like what we want him to. And so they debate amongst themselves. Oh, wow. What do we do? If we say it's from heaven, he's going to ask us why we didn't believe in John. It's their own self-choices, making them not believe in John, by the way, or Jesus for that matter. But it's like, if we say, man, everybody's going to kill us because they revere John to be a prophet. One of the commentators I read this week said it this way, Daryl Bach. He says, the question is brilliant. Because John's roots were as obscure as those of Jesus. Like Jesus, John had no formal training. He too preached repentance for all. Yet the people acknowledged John's ministry. Jesus has given plenty of evidence about the source of his authority. And we've seen it all through the book of Luke. Jesus has given ample evidence for what authority he does these things. Jesus has authority from God because he is God. And you're like, what does this have to do with building our life on Jesus? He's the only one with authority. He is the authority. He is the one from God because he is God. He has all authority. He's the only one worthy to be built upon. That everything else we build upon will fail us. Jesus is the only authoritative one to build your life upon. So we build upon him. He's worthy to be built upon. Therefore, don't build on anything else. We don't worry about what others think, what the culture says to think or do or believe. We just build on him. We trust in him and what he says. When he says it, that's it. It's done. We can trust it forever. He is the only trustworthy source that we have. That when Jesus says who he is, we believe him, we take his word for it, and then we build. We begin our lives on him. That we would love him. We would be 
with him. Verse 9, and he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the the tenants beat the servant and sent the servant away empty-handed. And he sent another servant and they also beat and treated him shamefully. And he sent away uh, him empty-handed and he sent yet a third. And this one was wounded and cast out. And the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that we might have the inheritance for ourselves. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And then uh, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Here we have this narrative about Jesus and authority. And then we begin to shift in the text Jesus begins to tell a parable. What is a parable? For simple definition this morning, an earthly story that shows a heavenly meaning, right? Jesus begins to tell a commonplace story, something that they could resonate with, right? There's a master, a rich guy, right? He owns some stuff. He's got some money, right? It was not uncommon for masters to have investment properties. Like we would have today, we would buy a house, flip it like Chip and Joanna Gaines. Back then it's like, let's buy this land and make some grapes, right? Let's, let's, let's get some profit from this land. So here's what I'll do. I'll give these servants, this crew, some time, some years to plant this vineyard, to grow some grapes. And at the appropriate time in a few years, I'll come back and I'll have money. They'll have money. They get to work the land. It's kind of like a win-win for everyone. But the problem is, is there's these wicked tenants who live here in this vineyard. And you may be asking yourself like, all right, parables are supposed to reflect heavenly meaning. What is this parable reflecting? Well, maybe you could like start asking questions. Who is who in the story, right? If you're like, who's the master? We probably got that one. That one's probably easy. Father, heaven, father in heaven, God himself is the master. And then it says beloved son. That one, like we definitely got, that's Jesus for sure, right? Absolutely, you're correct. Who are these wicked tenants? It's these religious elite. It's these ones who from the beginning of Israel's history have fumbled through what God has asked them to do, have been evil. That God would give Israel his land and tell them to like go and like let people come in, make provision for the foreigner, like love God, love neighbor and do that. And yet they fumble all the way through it. And so what does God do? He sends prophets. These are the other servants he sends and they beat in shame. And so he sends prophets like Jeremiah And they would beat Jeremiah. They would throw Jeremiah down in cisterns and do all this crazy stuff. Elijah, who would have to hide from the likes of Jezebel and her husband, Ahab. And then also John the Baptist, right? Who's brutalized and killed finally by Rome. That God would send the prophets to be like, hey, wake up, wake up. I'm coming, I'm coming. Well, surely they'll listen to my only son. Why do we think it's the only son here? It's because of the response of these wicked tenants. If we just kill the son, It's all ours. In the first century, if a man didn't have an heir to pass his inheritance onto, give it to his servants. So they say, oh, we killed the son, we get the land, we get the stuff. The Pharisees, just moments away from this text, if we just kill the son, he's gone. Good riddance, we have nothing to worry about anymore. The people won't defect and believe in him. That was like literally what they were worried about, that people would go and believe in the true son of God. 
Jesus didn't fit what they thought. Surely they can't worship him, right? And they get it wrong, they get it twisted, and they kill the very son of God. The challenge for us this morning is like the Pharisees, will we reject Jesus? Will we proverbially kill the son of God? We can't obviously kill God. He's doing alive and well. Jesus got up out of the grave right after he was killed. Three days later, got up out of the grave and is seated at the right hand of the father, interceding on our behalf now. He's doing great. We can't physically kill the son of God, but in our hearts we can. What does it look like today for us to reject and kill the son of God in our own lives? It is to hear the gospel and reject it anyway, just like these religious elite It is to see the blood of Jesus poured out and him die for our sins and know that knowledge and say, we don't need it. It is to be an atheist, to reject the true existence of a saving, loving God. It is to build our own Plato Jesus and worship it. Instead, it is to look at Jesus and say, we don't need you. We will work for our own righteousness instead. That Jesus, I I know you tell me I don't have to work for it, but I'm gonna still work for it. I know you said it, I'm just gonna do it anyway. And I work for my own righteousness. Renowned atheist Friedrich Nietzsche says it this way, and I know what you're thinking. You're going to quote an atheist to us on Sunday morning? Yes, I am. Hold on for just a second. Here's what Friedrich Nietzsche says. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. Interesting, because Jesus says something like that here in this passage. They've killed the very son. Seems like Nietzsche's on to something. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that of the world has yet owed, but blood to death, or he has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for uh, us to clean ourselves? What festival of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? What is Nietzsche saying? Back then he was saying, our culture has killed God. They've rejected God, just like we're talking about this morning. And I think Nietzsche, if he were alive today, 2022, would look at our culture and say, yep, we've done it. We've rejected God. And here was the thought. If we just reject God, we'll be happier. We won't live in so much sorrow under the weight of following God. Or you know what? If we reject God, we're going to feel less guilty, right? There's no standard to uplift to. There's no guilt. So if we just push God away, if we reject God, we spit in his face, there's no guilt anymore. If we reject God, there's no moral standard to live up to, so therefore we can't fail. Here's the problem with that thought, though. Many of us have tried it, to push God away, to spit in his face, and maybe some of us are there today, is that we've pushed God away, we've rejected him, and yet we still feel more sorrowful, not more happy, that we feel just as guilty or more than we did before we pushed God away that the guilt and the shame has not yet left us for some reason. That that moral standard that we thought we could get away from, we still feel this sense of morality inside of us welling up and we can't hide it, we can't suppress it. Now we're more sorrowful, we're more guilty, and we still have a standard that we can't live up to. And yet, Jesus says, accept me. Jesus says, I am the savior. I will make you the most happy and joyful you will ever be. I will rid you of all of your guilt and shame, that moral standard that you feel like you have to live up to. I'll do it in your place. I'll save you, build your life on this, accept this. We continue in verse 16. 
the vineyard owner would, they, they say, what would the vineyard owner do in verse 15? The answer, the vineyard owner will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the religious elite hear this, they say, surely not, surely not us, Jesus. You're not talking about us. How could we ever? Jesus looks back. It says he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them, but they feared the people. Here's the reality. There's, there's two things that can happen here when we get to the finish of this text. It says we can either accept this cornerstone, and I want to hang there for just a second. We can accept the cornerstone. What is a cornerstone's purpose back then? The cornerstone was literally the stone they would put at the corner, and then they would build everything else off of it, literally everything. They would start there, work their way out. He's saying accept this cornerstone as the prophet, the priest, the king, the one full of authority, the one who is God, the one who will save you. Build upon that. Start there. Work everything out from that moment. Build your life on the cornerstone. Accept him. And this is not just like a here and now thing. This is a thing that lasts for all of eternity. Paul would say that one day when we get to the end, when our foundation is built upon Jesus, there are these building materials that we will have and some will last because we've built the foundation upon him. And it would go into all of eternity that we would get to be God's forever, that we would get to be in his city as Revelation 22 would say, that there's no more tears, there's no more pain, there's a city with light and yet it has no sun. And I don't pretend to understand all the intricacies of Revelation, but what it sounds like is amazing, that we get to be in God's house forever if we accept it. If we accept him, build upon him for who he says he is. And we don't label him wrongly, but we look to him rightly. But then the flip side of that is what if we reject him? As he says, there's one day this judgment will befall those wicked tenants. He's warning the religious elite here. He's not just a hater on the Pharisees, by the way. He's, he's warned them. Multiple times, time after time after time. Here's another one. If you reject, you've hit the self-destruct button on your lives. And now that weight and that sin and that shame and that sorrowfulness and that guilt that you can't get rid of and that moral standard you can't reach, it's going to crush you. And one day, when all of the rejecting of Christ and spitting in his face is done and we breathe our last, there will be an eternal judgment, a final crushing if I could say it that way, under the weight of our own sin because we chose to reject God. Here's the reality, is we must accept Jesus for who he truly is, the true Jesus and the true gospel, not a false gospel, not a fake, idolatrous image of Jesus, but the true one. What is the true gospel? Who is the true Jesus? The true gospel is this, yes, is that we are sinners that God has a standard and we have all fallen short of it. That the wages of our sin is death, but 
God being rich in mercy with a great love in which he loved us, stepped out of eternity, became virgin born, lived a perfect 33 years, fulfilling all of the law and prophets and would die on the cross just moments, chapters away here. And he would die on the cross, taking the guilt and the shame and the weight and the crushing of God himself. The very wrath and anger of God would be set on Jesus's shoulders so it wouldn't have to be set on ours. This is a true God who is loving that he would save his people for all time. And not only would he die, he would go to the grave, but three days later would rise again so that we might live a life eternal with him forever. And then right before he would resurrect to the heavenly father, he would say, now go therefore and make disciples, teach them what I'm telling you now is that there is salvation for man, repentance for all that everyone could have their guilt ridden from them, that they could have more joy and less sorrow, that he is the one for them and who loves them. Our focus over this last month is, is share. We, we focused on reading the book of Luke, praying through the book of Luke, now sharing what we've learned from it. Would we go and would we tell others this amazing news that there is a cornerstone that we can build our lives upon if we just accept him? I would encourage everyone to just bow their heads and close their eyes and think with me for just a few minutes as we close our time here today. If you would say that you're a believer and maybe I talked about something today that you're, you're struggling with, maybe you've tried to work for your salvation, you've just tried to earn God's grace over and over, maybe you've fallen into the trap of letting the world set your view of Jesus before the Bible. Maybe you're hindering someone from coming to worship him. Maybe you're downplaying Jesus's authority in your life or in the lives of others. Maybe simply you just aren't sharing this with anyone. Would you just lay all of that down before Jesus today? Would you say, God, I'm done working for the salvation. I'm done with Plato Jesus. I'm done with hindering people from coming to you. God, I know you have authority, God emboldened me to go and share. Would you just lay it all down before him today and say, Jesus, I just want to look at you rightly and worship you rightly. Maybe today though, you would say, I don't believe in Jesus. I've rejected him time and time, again, time, and time again. I've never accepted him. In the scriptures, it says, today is the day of salvation that the offering stands is that you can accept him. You can build your life upon him, that he will rid you of all guilt and shame because he took your place. He took it for you, that you can live in his eternal joy. If that's the boat you're in this morning, I'd encourage you to pray something like this. It doesn't have to be exactly this, just the sentiment. Would you pray something along these lines? Say, God, I know I've sinned, God, I, I'm filled with guilt and shame. And God, I know that you died on the cross for me. God, I know you died, took my iniquities in my place, my sin in my place, so that I might live with you. God, I accept that. God, I don't even know what all of that means yet, but I accept it. And God, I'm willing to start to build my everything off of you. If you prayed something like that today or maybe you're struggling with some things that we talked about 
I would encourage you, would you please talk to someone before you leave today? We have our Next Steps team at my left, your right, at the end of service today. Grab somebody with a blue shirt that says, let's get you connected. Like, find, if they have a lanyard and look pretty official, just grab them. Like, hey, I need to talk to somebody. Would you not leave this place without talking to someone today? I had to do it this very week. That I was dealing with some deep things and I had to pull some people aside and say, hey, I, I'm, I'm struggling. I just need you to pray for me. Would you not leave this place without ridding those things from yourselves today? That you come before Jesus. I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna worship. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for who you are. God, we ask that in this time we would accept you and we would never push you away. God, we ask that you would move in us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.